Hello and welcome to Small Fortune, a podcast about the business of wine. This is our first conversation. It's with Vic Motto. He was the founder of the firm that Jacqueline and I both work for, Global Wine Partners. And we have a, a great conversation. If you've been in finance and the wine business for a while, you'll know Vic Motto. If you're new to the industry or not in the industry, you may not. A friend of mine gave the best quick explanation of who Vic Motto is. She was explaining to a mutual friend outside of the industry, this person I was going to be interviewing. She said, Vic Motto is the guy that when Robert Mondavi died, Newsweek magazine called him for a quote. So that's who Vic is, very central to the business. I know. I met Vic in 2007. He made a huge impression on me. Also, he gave me a really fabulous bottle of wine that day, uh, Hansel Pinot Noir. And I remember taking it home to my husband, and my husband was like, oh, my gosh, this is such a great bottle of wine. Like, yeah, the Vic Motto gave it to me. So that was a good start. And I'm still impressed by him today. It's kind of a lion of the wine business, a lion of the industry. Yes. Vic was very central to the industry there at the inception in many respects. And uh, this is a great conversation. He tells some fun stories about Colonel Rombauer. Ernie Gallo gets a shout out. Of course, he talks about uh, his good friend, uh, Robert Mondavi. Uh, towards the end of the interview, he he discusses the top priority for wineries. Um, if you listen to it, it sounds sort of obvious, but based on the you know, what we see in the world in terms of performance, it may be something that is not always front of mind for managers and owners of wineries, and it ought to be. So listen up, and thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you being willing to do the first one, being the guinea pig. Oh, I'm honored. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Now, I think it's going to be very newsy. I think people are going to really enjoy hearing what you have to say from your 50 years in the wine business. So, um, so how, how did you get started in, in the wine business? I don't think I remember that story. Well, thank you for having me, Carol. You know, I started in 1969 as a stock clerk in a wine shop. And there I took uh, weekly wine classes to learn about wine. And I gradually progressed in, in the wine shop. And it was actually a big chain of 160 stores. I progressed into area wine management. But then... Uh, Business school, became a CPA, then a management consultant with uh, Accenture, and then went back to uh, wine in Napa Valley and beyond that, ultimately as investment banker advising uh, wineries and wine marketers internationally. So pretty straightforward. Good. I was lucky because it was, uh, I think it was very good timing for the wine industry. You know, Ernest Gallo always liked to say that fortune favors those we're in the right place at the right time. And and you you formed uh, your firm, Motto Creel and Fisher, kind of in the early days of the wine business, becoming professional. That is the kind of the story as I recall it. And um, the MKF, of course, is how you, you gain tons of relationships in the wine space. So what, what kind of clients were were you working with at that time? Well, to begin with, when I was new, I only worked with people who were new. 
because the people who were established didn't, you know, didn't want to work with a new guy. But that changed over time, and uh, gradually started working with uh, established people and went from the smaller to the bigger and so forth. So over that time, I worked with clients ultimately in every major wine region of the world except China. Uh, it was primarily with wineries. Everything like in the U.S., everything from like Gallo to Screaming Eagle. And in Europe, from some of the first growths to Fat Bastard, uh, similar in Australia, New Zealand, South America. And then I've also worked some with U.S. distributors and importers uh, and wine agents and some other parts of the world where, of course, distribution is quite different. So a pretty broad range. And distributors, I mean, is there, you know, you working with the distributor and agents, is there any difference than working with the winery or is the business advisory is business advisory? It's different. When you say business advisory, the advice or the help is about anything. It could be something small. It could be something big. It, it could be about uh, their, you know, their business or it could be about some subpart of their business. So the subject matter is like all over the map. For some reason, you know, they like somebody from the outside with a broad perspective who works with a lot of companies to give them that perspective, which is different than you have when you're working in an individual company. Right. So 50 years in the wine business, uh, what, I mean, you've seen a lot, obviously, but <laughs> what are the, the big trends or the big changes or the, sort of the overall what have you seen during this period of time? Oh, my God. I mean, there's been tremendous change. Uh, there's been a complete transformation of the industry. You know, when I started, Napa Valley wasn't that well known. Uh, most of Napa's red wine production went into Gallo Hardy Burgundy. It was like, I think, something like $1.69 a bottle. Uh, California wine that sold for over $15 was less than 2% of the market when I started out. Now it's the biggest, biggest, fastest growing segment, in, and it's still in the U.S. anyway. And so it's still changing. And then the other thing is, back then, there were literally 15 times more distributors than wineries in the U.S. The distributors were actually knocking on doors, begging suppliers to give them some wine. Uh, we're certainly not doing that now. Yeah, I, I'm, I wonder if anybody who started in the last 15 years would believe you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's absolutely true. Yeah, it's amazing. It is, I have not been in the business as long as you have, but the challenge of the distributors at various times is always seems to be a factor uh, for wineries trying to figure out, do I go wholesale, don't I, why, you know, and how do I create those relationships? You know, it's, you've seen a lot, 50 years. There's hopefully going to be quite a few people listening. You know, what are some of the lessons learned for a winery owner, distributor, somebody listening in? What are some of the lessons learned about, you have examples of some things that you've learned over the years, some advice to give to the people listening? Yeah, I think so. You know, maybe the biggest thing that I've learned is that there's no single brand of wine that's really important. If a given brand didn't exist, it really wouldn't matter. I mean, that's... Wow. Harsh you know, words, uh, Vic. <laughs> well, I mean, it's true, uh, unfortunately. I mean, unlike most industries, uh, as you know, wine has just a massive number of producers and brands. Yep. And that means the 
no brand can be important because we have virtually infinite substitution of products. You know, in the U.S., we approve over 100,000 labels a year. In the U.S., there are more SKUs of wine than any other product except vitamins and supplements. I mean, this is humbling. You know, nobody needs your wine. So you have to start there. Wow. So given that we're, <laughs> where do you go once you realize that, that nobody intrinsically needs your wine? How, how do you break through? Well, like I said, there's infinite substitution. So the answer is probably to be one of the better substitutes because uh, you know, marketing in general of anything is, is all about positioning. And of course, in wine, uh, particularly since wine is inscrutable, your position is always relative to consumer perceptions of other wines. It's not unlike, say, politics or something. Perceptions are what matter. So it's about who are you positioned against uh, in the consumer's mind, not in your mind. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. Robert Mondavi, when he started, his family was in Lodi. Uh, their business was in the low end. They moved to Napa Valley, but they're still positioned against the same people at, the, at that time. But over time, he you know, raised his sights quite a bit. He went out on his own when he was 52 years old, started Robert Madavi Winery, and that's when he changed his position. He then said he wanted to be compared to the best French wines rather than California wines. Uh, his famous line that everybody knows is that, you know, we have the soil, the climate, and so forth, to be the best in the world. Well, that's what he did. So, you know, he would go out and travel to the top markets and he would taste his wines against the first growths. And it, no one had done that back then and it worked. To sell Sauvignon Blanc, he renamed it Fumé Blanc and he positioned it against Sancerre and Pouilly Fumé. And that worked. So it's really not about creating something new and different. It's about what's already in the consumer's mind and just making a connection there that already exists. That is a fascinating concept. Of course, when Robert Mondavi was doing it, there was a lot less competition. But uh, yeah, I think what you would suggest or advise is that um, that kind of positioning strategy or taking that view of your wine in relation to the consumer probably still works, even in it's even more crowded market than what Robert Mondavi was encountering. Well, it's true. You know, I, that is an old story, but the principle is still true. The principle still applies. And the, the circumstances around it may be a little bit different, but the positioning principle is fundamental and it always has been. Yeah. So assuming you've got your positioning right and you're, you're selling wine, because there's a lot of people who are capable of selling wine, but uh, making money at it is kind of a different kettle of fish. And of course, you came from the finance background yourself. And so you've, I think, had a focus on that aspect of the wine business for the people listening who may own or want to own a winery. Um, how do you make money? Well, you know, Carol, you're, you're, you worked as a banker and advisor to many wineries. So you, you know this maxim very well, which is when your outflow exceeds your inflow, your upkeep becomes your downfall. You know, that's true in general, but in the wine industry, it's really exacerbated by our long business cycle. Uh, as we all know, it takes a long time to get from the vineyard to the bottle, and then another long time to get from the winery to the consumer. So 
Uh, so the vintners making decisions and investments that don't pay off for years to come. And, uh, and so the first thing that means is that you need very patient money, uh, money that can wait for years, not short-term financing, which too many people use for long-term needs. So having a good foundation of long-term capital is, all, is really all important. And it's been the downfall of many who didn't have it. Uh, but that's a whole other podcast, or maybe more than that. <laughs> yes, we uh, can certainly have you back to go uh, into some detail on that for sure. Or many others who, who understand those principles, like yourself. You also need a, a viable strategic business plan. I mean, by strategic, meaning what, why, and how you're going to do it, whatever it is. Viable, meaning it will actually work sustainably that you can manage it and finance it so forth and have you did you participate in advising folks or is that something you you know they kind of need to do that for themselves no i think advising about making money is uh, fundamental to what we've always done yeah so what else does it take to make money you know you've been around You've seen the folks who, who 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 really made it work, you know, with this thing's called small fortune. It's part of that joke. And of course, you know, lots of people don't succeed, but the opposite is also true. There's plenty of folks who've done spectacularly well. Uh, there are a lot of stories. You know, I used to say there are a million stories in the Naked Valley. Of course, probably what you're selling is, is important, obviously. The world doesn't need another Chardonnay. So what are you going to sell that they'll buy? How are you going to sell it profitably and consistently? You know, I remember Kerner Rumbauer, 40 years ago, was struggling with this. His $12 Chardonnay wasn't selling well enough, even though it was pretty good. You know, Kerner had a, had a big personality. He was a very likable guy. So he started asking questions about his wine. He talked to a lot of his fellow vintners uh, so he could see what they thought he Went out into the market. He talked to retailers, restaurateurs, trade, even talked to consumers who he saw who were buying or drinking wine. I mean, he, the guy wasn't shy at all. And this is this is like the older Gallo approach: market research in the market, questions, observing consumer behavior. He asked a lot of questions: What are they like? What, what was their favorite? Why? How did they get interested in wine? So forth and so on. So Kerner went on and did all that research. Then he came back with some benchmark wines that seemed to fit with what he heard. So he picked one of those wines as his benchmark. It was made from a, a well-known Carnero Chardonnay vineyard with new oak and a little RS. So he gave that to his winemaker and he said, okay, this is it. Let's make this. I can sell the hell out of this. And it worked. You know, he got into the mind of the consumer. He made a connection and filled that space uh, with his new wine. Uh, and it worked really well. He, he figured out that you have to give them what they want, not what you want. So, you know, a lesson from this is that, you know, that old saying, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You only have to copy it. it it's, it's really more about doing a great job implementing these old ideas and principles that you're accusing me of uh, using. <laughs> which, which believe me, which believe me, still work. Yes, human nature has not changed. Um, so curiosity is part of the, the success story. I hear. Right. 
do you have other stories from your 50 years or, you know, other wisdom to impart? I know that lots of people are going to enjoy listening to this um, because, you know, you've, you've seen a lot and know a lot. You're a very analytical person. Well, you know, there are probably too many stories, but uh, let me first say this is an important key to success. Uh, when you're selling a product and we're in this fragmented, crowded market with infinite substitution, it's critical to be known for something. And the more specific that something is, the better. And the fewer products you're selling, the better. Because the easiest way to kill a brand is to line extent. Kleenex is a perfect example. I mean, Kleenex is obviously known for something. In fact, they define the category. And even with that very strong position, they still put the Kleenex name on only a single product, facial tissue. And nobody says facial tissue. They say Kleenex. Mm -hmm. And even with the power of that brand, they don't have any line extensions that would dilute that brand. And I think we can learn from that. The lesson is be known for something because that cuts through all the noise. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, your your previous example of the, the Rombera story, I mean, they make they make other wines, but, you know, they really have kind of just went with Chardonnay and were known for it. And they just have a tremendous success with that. And, yeah, I see it. And I, I often joke that I can tell a winery run by a winemaker if by the number of SKUs they have, because, you know, they're infinitely curious about trying a new grape. <laughs> well, of course. Get them in the trouble. <laughs> exactly. And so what is it, what, in, to your mind, you know, Rombar is a great example. Is there another brand that you think has achieved this being known for something in a, in a way that's meaningful? Well, well there, yeah, there is. I mean, there are a number of them. But, you know, I did some work with a winery that's owned by a partnership of two other wine companies, uh, French and American, uh, very successful. And, uh, you know, after, after years of investment and building a market, they built a very successful brand. A red wine. So at one point, wanting to build off of that, they were considering expanding their offering under that brand name. And they said, you know, we have a great red wine. We should make a great white wine like Chardonnay. And they had other ideas, maybe a drop-down wine, wine extension, maybe perhaps some other luxury products like brandy, cigars, and so forth. I mean, the ideas were just falling. But it was too much. You know, they couldn't agree. And so they asked me to help them sort through this. Uh, I started meeting with them individually in California and France, flying back and forth. Uh, then we had some joint meetings in New York. It went on for months, uh, back and forth, blah, blah, blah. And finally, they asked, they wanted a bunch of financial projections. And I said, you know, financial projections need assumptions. You can assume anything. It doesn't make it doable. Uh, so I, I suggested, you know, go out and talk to people in the market like you were talking about. Uh, so to start out, I interviewed all their salespeople. And then they interviewed, you know, certain distributors, trade accounts, so forth. And what came back out of that was this. Guess what? We don't need another expensive Chardonnay. And we certainly don't need any more line extensions. But I'll tell you what, we can sell more of what you're already known for if we get appropriate sales and marketing support. So that's what they did. They focused on the one product they're known for. They became even better at it by concentrating on it. 
And today, the price of that is five times higher. I mean, literally five times higher. And the volume has also grown as well. So it's a great lesson. You know, it's better to do one thing very well than many things, maybe not as well. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe starting this podcast was a bad idea. <laughs> Getting a little... <laughs> I stick with selling wine companies, maybe, but no, we're 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 looking forward to doing this and imparting some wisdom. We hope, and and you were a great start for that. So, what about wine pricing? You were talking about this them managing to achieve a five x increase in their price. You know what what's the story on pricing? It's kind of part of the mathematics of making money. Well, pricing is simple. You know, higher is better. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, rising prices have been the story of the industry, certainly for the last 50 years. I mean, it didn't start out that way. As we all know, wine is fundamentally an agricultural commodity, kind of like wheat or corn. But it's still true, after 50 years, that the overwhelming majority of wine in the world sells for less than the equivalent of $5 a bottle. Some of it goes for industrial alcohol. There's absolutely no shortage of wine. And there never has been. So how do you deal with that? You know, well, the Europeans, you know, Europeans, they they had the high end a long time ago, uh, but it's always been very small, just for the elite customers. And most of the market was always low end. It was really more of a commodity product, like milk or something. You know, then in the twentieth twentieth century, Americans got into it, and they innovated, and they created first a middle mass market segment. And then they built on that. They extended higher instead of lower, and they went even higher until we became the richest wine market in the world. And that happened in the last quarter of the 20th century. And they did it using good old-fashioned American-style marketing plus hand-selling, bottle by bottle. Uh, And the rest of the world is still catching up with that. So these uh, pricing decisions, though, are still very hard. Uh, obviously, price is driven by demand, which is even harder to create, but possible. But that's a whole other podcast, too, right? Uh, how to create demand. But let me tell you an important story that explains something about pricing. This is an old story, but it's really good, I think. Ernie Van Aspern, now gone, uh, owned a Round Hill Winery which is one of the early California negotiant wineries, bought bulk and bottled it. Uh, But before that, he owned 80 wine shops. And he started his business by buying a single wine shop in Oakland that was originally called Bernie's. He took the the B off the sign and called it Ernie's. Oh, uh, (laughs) there you go. Ernie Van Asperen. I figured it out. Right, Ernie Van Asperen. Okay, got it. So, so when Ernie took over the store, Bernie, the seller, was showing him around. And uh, over in one corner, they had these three big wooden wine ovals where customers would come in and fill their own jugs, which was a popular thing back then. And the first oval they had there was priced at 50 cents a gallon, the next one a dollar, and the last one was $1.50. So Bernie tapped the oval and he said, you know, I buy this from so-and-so winery who makes it for me. And Bernie said, well, what about the other two wines? Bernie said, well, you know, they're all the same wine. Some people like to pay 50 cents and some people like to pay a dollar. 
<laughs> oh my god, that is a great story. <laughs> that's still true. Oh no, I, I completely, and and that's what makes it so complicated in the in the wine space and certain aspects of it. As you know, the luxury segment, you know, it's sort of counterintuitive, but you know, you have to be very careful with price at, at all price points. But um, getting it right and finding the people who who want to pay $150 for a bottle of wine. You know. They're out there. Sorry? I said they are out there, the ones who want to pay 100 So Ernie Van Aspen, though, he was a, was that a wholesale brand, Round Hill? I don't recall. No, it was a winery. It was on Lodi Lane, and they just bought bulk wine and bottled it under Round Hill and distributed it like anything else. Got it. So the distribution business versus, like, there's a lot, as you know, nowadays, um, a lot of folks in the wine business, because of the, you know, consolidation and the increased difficulty in getting anybody to, in the, you know, distributors to care about smaller brands have gone direct to consumer. So, you know, kind of what are your thoughts on direct versus distributor? What have you seen there? Well, those are, yeah, those are two very, very different topics. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, with, with consumer direct, uh, I was one of the founders of the coalition for free trade that got the, Got the laws changed so we sell consumer direct, and so I, I spent quite a lot of time on that. But distributors is that that's really different. Uh, you know, I think probably the most important thing is that the supplier and the distributor obviously are two very different businesses. They're in their business, you're in your business. Two different industries, uh, different culture, different language, different. Different rules for success. The, the, the whole way of thinking is different. And distributors, of course, are a medium. They're, they're not an answer. You, you sell through them, not to them. It's it's more like a rest stop on the highway. You don't want to stay there too long. Uh, <laughs> the customer priority of the winery is the consumer, even yep. if you don't have a direct relationship with the consumer. Uh, the most successful wineries put a lot of marketing and selling into both the trade and consumers to create pull. You need pull. It's very hard to be important to distributors without that. Uh, and in those distributor relationships, you know, with distributors, the things you need to manage are different. You first need to manage placements, including where you're placed. If you're not in the in the right accounts, reaching the right consumers through those accounts, then you get lost in the maze or you get in the wrong places which are bad for your brand. Uh, the other keys you have to monitor with distributors are, uh, you know, getting in the target, besides getting in the targeted accounts, are uh, depletions, profit growth, and certainly personal relationships. There aren't any shortcuts to that. It's work. Yeah. And it's not fun work. Obviously, you need good relationships with distributors. And, you need to support them. You need to closely coordinate with them. You need to understand how they make money. What makes money for them? How does their business work? What are their keys to success? Things like margins, inventory terms, profitable accounts, appropriate winery marketing and sales support. You should discuss their success with them. And I think you'll both see each other very differently. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And 
of course, not easier said than done. But but yeah, I mean, in our line of work, the selling of wineries, I, I often talk about the fact that the, the true scalability that, that some of the most active buyers are looking for, you know, is going to come at the wholesale level. And so, um, you know, kind of being meaningful to the trade in some way through the wholesalers uh, or distributors having knowledge of your brand, I think, can be important. So, yeah. So, a uh, couple of couple of last questions, and thanks again for joining us. Um, so, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see wineries making? Oh, I know a lot about mistakes. <laughs> you know, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. It happens. You know, the real question is. Do you recognize the mistake? And how do you respond to it? You know, this is a very slow moving business, so there's there's usually time to adjust to mistakes. And as long as you don't respond to a mistake by making another mistake, because that <laughs> happens too. <laughs> uh, I mean, the biggest way to get in trouble for a winery is usually with production. Okay, I mean, you, you make too many products, the, uh, the wrong things. Or worst of all, too much product. When that happens, you got a problem. But you can't double down on the mistake by selling it under your brand because then it's a brand killer. And we've seen that happen a lot. I mean, there's an ironclad rule in investing that applies to business as well, which is that your first loss is your best loss. So you make a mistake, take the loss, yes. move on. Yes. Move on. And the best answer is to always make less wine than you can sell at full price, of course. You know, I'll tell you a story. The late, great Tony Trelato understood this. Back when he was also a, a distributor in Illinois, uh, Ferrari Corano had their first release. And I was talking to him about it. He said, you know, they, they only gave me 200 cases to sell. And I actually love that. Because now nobody can argue about the price. Mm. And that's the key point. That's the key point. Yeah. I don't know what, what the set of circumstances are. I don't know if you have a view on this, that the do lead a, a very frequent mistake in the business to be making more wine than, than you can sell. And, and part of that may be that you're, you, know, you have to look out of several years. But I don't know if there's any, any particular sort of tendency that you've observed as to why People in the wine business frequently get themselves into that situation. Is it just that time lag and demand shift or over-enthusiasm? Obviously, you never know how much wine a vintage is going to give you if you're growing grapes or buying grapes and so forth. Sometimes you get more than, sometimes you get a bumper crop. It happens. Mm -hmm. It's just, it happens to everybody. Everybody makes too much wine at some point. What do you do about it is really the, the, the question. It's not the mistake. It's the resolution of the mistake uh, that's important. Right, right. So final question. What do you see? What is your sort of final advice for winery owners, managers, advisors? Like what is the uh, top priority for a winery? Well, you know, wine is a very complicated business with lots of priorities. And of course, it's a lot of small business, which makes it even more complicated. So there are a lot of hurdles to jump. But staying focused on the top priority is very important. 
because it's easy to get lost in the minutiae of daily details of the business. I think the top priority should always be to have a sustainable and growing profitability. Profitability, that's the goal line. Profitability is the farthest thing away. It, it's, it's, the, it's the hardest thing to see, the hardest thing to reach, uh, so, uh, the hardest thing to get. So you always need to be working toward that and make all your decisions directed toward that from day one. I mean, it's not the only goal, but obviously without growing profitability, other goals don't really matter unless it's a, unless it's a hobby you can afford to indulge. I mean, how many wineries have we seen that were an artistic success but a financial failure? Yep. Now gone. Yes. So for me, for me, the biggest lesson learned is always to be impatient for profit and just stay on that road. And I'll also say that of all the people that I've known in wine, the most successful are not the smartest, not necessarily. They're the most tenacious. They just don't give up, assuming they start with a good idea to begin with. You know, yeah. it's a great, it's really a great business, but you have to be tough, tenacious, and driven, and you have to remind yourself of that. I completely agree. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very difficult business. That's the premise, I think, of the podcast. But yeah, there's been a ton of success and you've seen it and helped make it happen in some cases. So very much uh, appreciate you joining our inaugural podcast. Well, thanks, Carol. It's an honor and a privilege. Hi, Small Forks and listeners. If you have any questions or ideas for Carol, email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. And we'd really love it if you could follow us on your favorite podcast platform and like, review, or share the show. Please join us next time. Thanks. How is Barkley? Well, he's good. You know, he's an old dog, but he's hanging in, kind of like me. How old is Barkley now? 12. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Well, you've had him for a few years, so he's he's probably living the life. He's the same age as me. He's probably probably laying on the couch like he's doing it a favor. That's what I say about Harry. (laughs) He's always laying on like a piece of upholstered furniture where she's not supposed to be lying. And she's a spread out on the sofa laying on the bed or something. She's so crazy.